0: This is Vicki Iden with your local news coming to you live via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Governor Tony Evers is directing $50 million in federal coronavirus relief aid to Wisconsin's farmers. That's on top of an additional $50 million already distributed to the state's farmers via the Wisconsin Farm Support Program. The grant program will open to applicants after this fall's harvest, according to the governor's office. The Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, a conservative legal firm, is suing Dane County over its new mask mandate. That mandate, which requires masks indoors, is set to go into effect tomorrow. The Institute, commonly shortened to Will, has filed its case as an original action before the Wisconsin Supreme Court. The Capital Times reports that the firm is seeking to block the mandate before it goes into effect tomorrow. Beginning August 30th, UW-Madison will require unvaccinated students and employees to undergo weekly COVID-19 tests. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that nearly 90% of the university's employees have been fully vaccinated. An anticipated 80% of students will be vaccinated by the start of the school year. The move comes after the campus reinstated an indoor mask mandate earlier this month. That mandate applies to everyone on campus, regardless of vaccination status. In related news, Governor Tony Evers has voiced his support for mandatory vaccinations for school teachers. Speaking at a press conference today, Evers stopped short of saying he supported a state-issued vaccine mandate. Instead, he lent his support to school district-level vaccination mandates. Evers' endorsement comes shortly after Madison School District officials said they wouldn't be enforcing a staff vaccine mandate. And now for your daily COVID-19 numbers. The state's rolling seven-day average of new cases currently stands at 1,224 cases per day. That's the highest case rate since early February, according to numbers from the state's Department of Health Services. Hospitalization rates also continue to climb. The rolling seven-day average of hospitalizations is at 619 patients. And a quick correction before we jump into the rest of the show. Uh, In yesterday's broadcast, it was incorrectly reported that the state's seven-day average of new COVID-19 cases was around 12,000 cases per day. Thankfully, no, that should have been 1,200 cases per day. So apologies for that misstatement. And now, on to today's top stories. A new mixed-use apartment building is being proposed for Madison's East Side. The project's location is the former site of a controversial stop-and-go in the Shank-Atwood-Starkweather-Yahara, or Sassy, neighborhood. Our producer, Jonah Chester, has got the details.
1: Located on the 2000 block of Winnebago Street, the property has been abandoned since neighborhood pushback forced out a small stop-and-go in March. At the heart of that month's long debate were three issues. The decision to remove postal services from the store, the closure of the only neighborhood laundromat, which shared the building with stop-and-go, and and the denial of stop-and-go's liquor license, twice. Those feuds came shortly after stop-and-go was acquired by Quick Trip, which implemented significant changes to the neighborhood store. Those were the same changes that would eventually force the business out. Brandon Cook is the new owner of the Winnebago Street property. Speaking at a neighborhood meeting yesterday, he said that he tried to entice Quick Trip back to the sassy neighborhood after the fight.
2: They said, let let us stop you right there. We have no interest in coming back. We're selling it. We're deed restricting it. And those deed restrictions are, it can never be a Quick Trip or anything that competes with Quick Trip over the next 50 years. And so it's an interesting property that I purchased that it can't be what it was.
1: Now, Cook is proposing a three to four story mixed use development for the property. The new project will have 1,100 square feet of commercial space and 24 market rate apartments. As to postal services, well, Cook says he's aware of the neighborhood's need for it.
2: I think it's more of a neighborhood demand. And if the post office would like to come back,
1: I got a space for them. Like Cook's predecessor on the property, his new project is facing scrutiny from sassy neighbors. Speaking at yesterday's meeting, resident and WORT contributor Helena White expressed concern over apartment costs in the new development. Apartments in the building will range from $900 for a studio to $1,600 for a two-bedroom apartment.
3: Well, that's not very affordable, I'm afraid, for working families. People here are struggling to... To be able to afford to stay in this neighborhood, this is not going to help. A, a one-bedroom for 1100
4: that's a lot of money.
1: Cook says the costs for the apartments are similar to other properties he owns across Madison. The new project on Winnebago Street is still in the early planning stages. It hasn't even been introduced to the city yet as a formal proposal. The project will tentatively be submitted to city staff on September 1st, with a hearing before Madison's plan commission set for mid-October. Barring any major controversies, construction could begin next spring. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jonah Chester.
0: Bayview, located just a few blocks from WORT in the Greenbush Triangle neighborhood, officially broke ground on much-needed housing redevelopment this morning. Local leaders took care to emphasize that this time they avoided a painful mistake of the past by including the whole community. WORT's Shali Pittman was there.
5: Bayview has been a part of Madison for 50 years. It aims to support diversity and foster cultural pride and provide affordable housing. But that housing is in a desperate need of an update. And so this summer, the process of rebuilding Bayview begins. This morning, children were still playing on sidewalks as residents, politicians, and community partners gathered under a big white tent to celebrate breaking ground on the first phase of the $50 million project. Alexis London is executive director of the Bayview Foundation. She says they started planning to update the homes in this community five years ago and that the planning process was unique in centering resident engagement. And what we learned is that when you listen with care, curiosity and compassion and you learn together and work in collaboration, real change is possible. Dane County Executive Joe Parisi Says that this kind of community input is the way development should work.
1: My family roots go back to this very neighborhood, about a block from here. The corner Park and Region is where my my father grew up. My grandparents immigrated here from Sicily, and unfortunately, as we know, the last time this community was redeveloped in the '60s, it was done to the community, not with the community. And as a result, cult- a culture. Hundreds of families were all displaced, and a lot was lost in the manner in which that occurred. And I could not be more thrilled that this community is honoring the roots of this community that go way back by doing it right this time. I'm full name is Saiwa Yang, the last name is Saiwa Yang.
5: Sai Va Yang has been a Bayview maintenance man and resident for more than three decades. He says he was hired in 1990 because he spoke three languages—Lao, Hmong, and English. He's been busy trying to keep the existing infrastructure up to date.
6: All like over 50 years old, the building like they like you know, everything old and breakdown, breakdown. They have to fix it, and repair, remounting it. Too much work. <laughs> My name is Nina Okwale. I'm from originally from Nigeria, Africa.
5: Nina Akwale is from Nigeria, but has lived in Bayview for about two decades. She's also a part of the community's housing committee and is a Bayview leader.
6: Bayview is a, is a place for international people. I mean, when I mean international, it brings a lot of people from different countries, different um, uh, culture, coming together under on one roof. So we have, have a common ground to bring us together to get to know each other. It's like a family-oriented place. It's a very beautiful place, safety for children. I have a lot of programs that bring kids together. We have a lot of programs that bring adults together. It's just a family-oriented area, safe for everyone.
5: She says that residents were a central part of planning the redevelopment, everything from the color of houses to making sure that children are protected from through traffic.
6: Yeah, they were concerned about children, you know, since we have a parking lot and then the playground is along the road. We didn't want a road that would pass through this neighborhood that is, has to be high speed. We don't want to lose lives. We wanted something that has to do with a emergency or a bicycle or bike. This is kind of a low speed, like below 25, just for life, safety, purpose.
5: To ensure that no residents are displaced, it's a phased plan, and that means residents will have to move in phases.
6: So if my building is selected to be demolished and to move, it's difficult to move. So that's what I'm not looking forward to, but I have to, if I have to support the development.
5: Construction on the new housing is expected to be completed by 2024. When it's completed, the redevelopment will allow Bayview to house more than 200 additional people. Meanwhile, Bayview is still in the midst of a capital campaign to raise $4 million for a new community center. More information is at bayviewfoundation.org. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Shally Pittman.
0: It's now 6.17 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. report from the nonpartisan Wisconsin Policy Forum finds that in the years prior to last summer's protests against police violence, more than 250 Wisconsin municipalities cut funding to their police departments. But during that same period, Madison added more police officers than any other Wisconsin city. For more, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Ari Brown, a researcher with the Wisconsin Policy Forum.
1: Uh, So the Policy Forum's new report details police spending trends across Wisconsin prior to last summer's protests against police violence. Now, broadly, you found that from roughly 2018 to 2019, more than 250 municipalities statewide actually decreased their police spending. It was even amid a period of, of strong economic growth across the state. I should add that Madison is actually an exception to that rule. We added, if I have my numbers correct here, about nineteen mm-hmm. officers. So, tell me about a little bit more about the impetus behind those those funding cuts across the state. Once again, Madison excluded. Why was this such a broad trend?
7: Sure. So, um, yeah, in the in the course of um, working on this piece, we really wanted to get at um, why this might be happening, and also just looking at the trends, you know, prior to both the kind of economic issues that the pandemic introduced, but also kind of this broader conversation we've been having for over a year now in regards to the appropriate levels of police funding. And I should note also that the forum does not take a stance on the question of defunding or funding the police and also does not take a stance on, you know, the appropriate level of of police spending in any given community. But... What we found was that, as you mentioned, you know, a number over 250 um, decreased their police spending from uh, 2018 to 2019, two years where there was very strong overall economic growth um, before any of the pandemic started to impact our daily lives. There's a number of reasons why this may be, but some of the ones that we talk about in the piece, the main one being on the revenue side for municipalities for a number of years now, there have been kind of these two main constraints. The first of which is uh, what we call levy limits, property tax increase levy limits. So since 2011, for a decade now, the state of Wisconsin has tied the amount that municipalities can increase their property taxes year over year to the rate of net new construction in any given community uh, with a floor of 0%. Um, so prior to that, the floor was a little bit higher, um, but in 2011, that 0% floor became reality. That means that were a municipality to not have any new construction in it. In any given year, they could not increase the amount that they can garner in property taxes year over year. What we found in a bunch of our past research is that the rate of net new construction statewide tends to lag a little bit behind inflation, which generally means that as the years have gone on past 2011, the kind of ability of municipalities to keep up with kind of the demands on the spending side have been a little bit constrained because property taxes are kind of the biggest drop in the bucket when it comes to municipal revenues as a general rule. That's not the case in every community. Another main factor that we found was, we've also written about this quite a bit in the past, but the state makes a number of payments to municipalities in the form of state aid, the biggest one being something called county municipal aid. Overall, state aids to municipalities have been relatively stagnant for quite a while and even falling in certain recent years. Obviously, this is in real dollars as well, so the question of you know, keeping up with inflation is, is out the window there, and, and that being one of the other very big uh, drops in the bucket in terms of municipal revenues, um, also the, the you know, spending power is quite a bit down. So those two things combined have really put a strain on municipal budgets. We note in this piece also that between police, fire, and EMS, um, which would also kind of the legislation that was kind of the impetus for us looking at this question would have impacted all of those categories. Those three combined account for about 40% of all uh, municipal operating spending statewide. That number is even higher in big cities. We found that all 10 of the most populous cities, those three items combined, make up uh, a higher proportion of operating spending than the uh, statewide average. So, when you're talking about municipal budgets being constrained and having to potentially cut funding from uh, certain categories in order to divert it to a different category, you know, obviously municipalities. Are responsible for spending on a lot of different items, including police, fire, and EMS, but also items like parks and libraries and much more. When they're experiencing those constraints from the revenue side, there are certain times, you know, depending on the municipality, where, where certain budgets are going to need to be cut. Because police, fire, and EMS make up such a high proportion of you know, overall operating spending for municipalities... It makes sense that that even in healthy economic times, with these kind of constraints on the revenue side, we would see certain places around the state that chose, for whatever reason, to divert funding away from uh, law enforcement. Um, I'll also note that you know we we call out the fact that this was the case in over 250 municipalities from 2018 to 2019. At the same time, a higher number of municipalities increased their police spending uh, and overall police spending was was up statewide, as is the case with uh, fire, where you had, you know, hundreds of municipalities decreased their uh, fire spending, but the overall trend was was upwards just out of sheer number of municipalities that are in the state, we have almost 2,000 across Wisconsin between cities, villages, and towns.
1: So let's dial in on the data a little bit more. You know, I know from reading the report, and correct me if I'm wrong, I may have misread this, but from the 2018 to 2019 period, Madison actually added more, uh, more uniformed police officers than any other municipality in the state. I might have misread that, so correct me if I'm wrong on that point. Help me place us here locally in Madison. Where do we compare, and where do we stack up compared to the other municipalities you took a look at in this report?
7: Yeah, you're completely right. So the the uh, staffing levels that we looked at are actually from a uh, non-Wisconsin source. They're from something called the uh, the FBI's Uniform Crime Reporting data program. So it doesn't line up exactly what with uh, what is in. Um, You know, if you went to the Madison budget and looked, you would see slightly different numbers. Um, But we did find that Madison had the largest increase in sworn strength officers uh, from 2018 to 2019 of of, uh, 19 officers and also had, I believe, the largest increase in the law enforcement line item um, in Department of Revenue data for spending on on law enforcement uh, of any municipality over, you know, those two years as well. It makes some sense, obviously, um, just in terms of like sheer totals. Um, you would expect Madison to be towards the top and likely behind Milwaukee a lot of times as it's the second largest municipality. Um, in the case of police, Milwaukee um, had some decreases to their both sworn strength, I believe, and definitely to their budget uh, over those years. So it makes sense then that Madison would be first. I'll also note, um, we recently published, the, the forum recently published our municipal data tool. So I wanted to just pull the numbers from there as well. In uh, 2019, Madison spent $312 per capita on police and net police as well. So this would factor out things like municipalities making payments to other municipalities for police services. That dollar amount, $312 per capita, out of the 602 cities and villages would rank 47th, so relatively high. But overall, you know, on a, on a per capita basis, Madison's numbers look, you know, not really out of the ordinary when it comes to what was happening um, with municipalities from 2018 to 2019.
1: Ari, thanks so much for, for joining me today. Before I let you go, I, I do have one final question here. Um, you know, the debate over funding or defunding the police has taken on sort of a new tilt in the past year and a half, since last summer's protests. Uh, now, I get largely the, the Wisconsin Policy Forum and the, the forum's most recent report didn't really weigh in on this issue but if you were to take the data you collected in this most recent report and in the reports the Policy Forum has conducted uh, here in the in the recent past, how do you predict that, that sort of cultural and societal debate over the funding of the police and the new focus we have on it will play out in the next few years? Do you anticipate that trend of Wisconsin municipalities cutting funding will continue?
7: Sure. So I'll also note, too, that, that and, and we note this in the piece that Uh, A majority of city, village and town governments in Wisconsin spend nothing on police from year to year. There are a lot of pockets of the state that are when police services are needed, that's usually filled um, through uh, county sheriffs and outside of the municipality. It's a great question, though. uh, And obviously, you know, the forum's focus in this topic is primarily of, of a fiscal nature, but. You know, it, it's an interesting thing to look at. Um, we, we did a, a recent report that looked at police reform in Milwaukee, and, and we wanted to look at this question of, of defund the police. And, and, you know, we looked at a number of large uh, peer cities and found that um, even in cities where there was kind of this big focus and, and big conversation around defund the police, in, including a city like Minneapolis, where kind of this whole, um, one could argue this whole, this whole kind of movement started, you know, even in places like that, initial promises to significantly decrease police budgets. Um, haven't really materialized in a lot of places. Um, you know, there hasn't been really many, even big city departments uh, around the U.S. that have have decreased their police budgets by amounts that would register really as very abnormal compared to past years. Though at the same time, I think it's an interesting question to watch. One of the things we we also wrote about in uh, in the police reform report for Milwaukee was about how the city and, and a lot of its peer cities are starting to look to. Other forms of response when it comes to specifically crisis intervention uh, and mental health services, I think there are going to be a number of factors to look at here. To the extent that uh, that any city is going to look at some of those alternate kind of uh, ways of handling crisis uh, situations, um, that will be something to follow. To the extent that Wisconsin municipalities are still going to be under these levy limit increased restraints and shared revenue uh, increased restraints, that's going to be something to look at. There's a bunch of these questions that kind of come into play. And I think interesting, interestingly enough, uh, come into play beyond the question of ideology. Um, You know, obviously, each municipality has to determine what's right uh, in terms of level of spending on on all of these different services, police, fire, EMS, libraries, parks, so much more. But beyond just ideology and kind of these questions that are happening in in popular culture, there's also so many kind of fiscal uh, things that come into play as well.
1: All right. I've been joined on the other end of the line by Ari Brown, a researcher with the Wisconsin Policy Forum. Ari, thanks so much for coming back on the show.
7: Yeah, thanks so much for having me.
0: You're listening to Handcrafted Local News here on WORT. Stay with us. We've got a lot more stories for you coming up in the second half of the show. Pressure is mounting for the chair of the state's Natural Resources Board to step down. A former Dane County jail inmate is pushing for justice. And we get the headlines from August 1969. But now we'll take a quick break and then we'll check in on some world headlines. Back in a flash. Time is 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for joining us tonight. Over the past several weeks, pressure has been mounting for the chair of the Wisconsin Natural Resources Board to resign. Frederick Prain's term on the board was expired. It expired in May, but he has repeatedly refused to step down. Now, Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call is suing to get Prain off the board, which is the governing body of the Wisconsin Department of Natural Resources. For more on the debate, our producer Jonah Chester spoke with Danielle Kading, a reporter with the Wisconsin Public Radio, who's been following the case.
1: So, tell me a little bit about who Frederick Prain is. He serves on the Wisconsin Natural Resources Board, and in recent weeks, he's become the subject of intense uh, scrutiny. From, uh, from climate and environmental advocacy groups. Sort of, sort of take me from there. Give us the background on who this man is.
3: Yeah, Dr. Fred Prain is a Wausau dentist, and he was appointed to the Natural Resources Board under former Republican Governor Scott Walker back in 2015. And he was appointed for a six-year term, and that expired in May. Um, and Governor Evers appointed his nominees to the board Um, including Sandra D. Noss and Sharon Adams to fill, um, you know, the vacancies created by expiring terms of uh, board members who were appointed during the Walker administration. But uh, Prain has essentially refused calls for him to step down and decided to remain on the board past the end of his term.
1: Now, how does that work? How is how is he able to sort of supersede his own term limit? Is there some weird loophole there that he's essentially using to stay in his position?
3: Well, there was a state Supreme Court ruling in 1964 that he's pointed to, which basically allows him to remain in his seat until the state Senate confirms any new appointment from the governor. Um, and the Republican-controlled Senate has yet to hold a confirmation hearing on Governor Tony Evers' nominee. So, But to answer your question, essentially, it is legal what he's doing, but it is quite unusual. It's only happened like two times in the past couple decades.
1: So now sort of at the behest of those climate and environmental advocacy groups I mentioned earlier, uh, Wisconsin's uh, Democratic Attorney General Josh Call is taking legal action to attempt to push Prane out of his seat. Walk me through the steps Call is taking in this matter.
3: Yeah, Call has filed a lawsuit in Dane County Circuit Court, and he is hoping that a judge will issue a ruling to remove Fred Prane from the board, finding that he is no longer a member. Um, because there has been some dispute regarding the legality of Prane's ability to remain on the board. While he points to this Supreme Court ruling that allows him to stay, you know, other environmental and animal rights groups have argued that his position is not one that allows board members to hold over indefinitely, um, that uh, board members who are appointed to the Natural Resources Board serve, Six-year fixed terms, and there's nothing in the statute that says anything about the ability to hold over, and so they're arguing that the governor would be within his rights to remove Fred Prane from the board, and they're hoping that a Dane County Circuit Court judge will rule to that effect.
1: Now, you mentioned that this isn't this situation here isn't entirely beyond the pale, and we've actually had a similar situation where board members have refused to step down in the past. I believe you mentioned it was either one or two times in recent memory. Can you walk me through some of those cases? What happened there?
3: Yeah, back in the early 2000s, there were a couple of board members, Steve Willett and Jim Tiefenthaler Jr., and I apologize if I'm completely butchering his last name. But um, those um, individuals decided to remain in their seat on the board. And like I said, that was a little over, it was within the last two decades. And basically that situation also occurred at a time when you saw one administration in power and the other controlling um, the state Senate. And so there's been this political tug of war that we've seen in the past Um, Whenever we have one party in power in the governor's office and the other in power in the state legislature. And I think that's what's also playing out here again on the Natural Resources Board with Fred Prain's decision to remain.
1: We can't really talk about the Natural Resources Board without talking about their their recent controversial vote on Wisconsin's wolf hunt quota. Now, they approved a 300 sort of head quota for this upcoming fall season. That is actually against the recommendation of the Department of Natural Resources, which, if I remember correctly, recommended somewhere in the neighborhood of 130 wolves for this fall season. Where did Prane stand on that debate?
3: Well, I think he and other board members have pointed to the state's existing wolf management plan that has set a management threshold of 350 wolves, and that plan was first written in 1999 and last updated in 2007, and, and critics have said that plan is vastly outdated and not based on the best available science, but they have pointed to it as a reason why they need to bring this population down to that a uh, level of 350 wolves, which the DNR has argued was never intended to be a population goal, but really uh, a trigger for management, such as you know, implementing a wolf hunt. So there's this debate, I think, between some of the conservative members on the board um, who would like to see more aggressive harvests of the state's wolf population as farmers and um, hunters have seen increasing conflicts with pets and livestock. As the population has grown and, you know, the Evers appointees and also conservationists and animal rights and environmental groups who argue that, you know, we went over that 200 wolf quota in February and now to have another quota of 300 wolves, if that were to be reached, you would essentially be removing up to half the state's wolf population um, and possibly drawing it down to unsustainable levels. So, Uh, I think that's what's playing out right
1: now. Uh, Circling back around for a minute, you mentioned that for Prane to be formally removed from a seat, assuming uh, assuming Attorney General Call's lawsuit takes a prolonged amount of time, would take action from the Republican-controlled Senate. Now, have Senate Republican leaders or or, uh, Senate Majority Leader Devin Lemahieu, have they weighed in on this at all? Have they indicated that they're likely to remove him from the position or has it been largely radio silence from them?
3: You know, I reached out to Senator LeMay, he's or the Senate Majority Leader's office today, to see, you know, if they have any plans to schedule a confirmation hearing for um, Governor Eber's appointees. Um, and I have not heard back from them. And I don't believe a confirmation hearing has been scheduled as of yet for the Natural Resources Board nominees. One thing I would like to note is that I did talk with Sandy Knoss today, who is uh, the Evers appointee, who has been unable to take a seat on the board because of Prane's decision to stay, and she said that she's ready to serve on the board when given the opportunity. She says that's in the hands of the courts now, and Um, hopes that they reach a decision sooner rather than later. But she did indicate that if she had been on the board, that she would not have supported their decision to set a quota of 300 wolves. She essentially said that, you know, experts are calling for caution leading up to this fall wolf hunt, and she didn't believe that, you know, the advice of experts was heeded in last week's board meeting.
1: Danielle, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me. Before I let you go, is there anything else you want to add to the record that we haven't quite touched on here today?
3: Yeah, Prane is saying today that he believes that this lawsuit from the attorney general is politically motivated um, and that basically the Evers administration views him as a roadblock to their agenda. And moving forward, you know, it remains to be seen what any court ruling would mean for natural resources board decisions that have already been made under Prane's tenure, you know, it's yet to be determined whether it could possibly affect decisions that were made retroactively, or if it would only affect those decisions by the board moving forward, assuming that a court would remove him, but possibly may, they may rule that he could in fact stay or that it's legal for him to stay until the Senate confirms him.
1: All right. I've been joined on the other end of the line by Danielle Kading, a reporter at the Superior Bureau of Wisconsin Public Radio. Danielle, thank you so much for taking time out of your day to chat with me.
0: Thanks so much, Jonah. Back in December, Jimmy Joshua broke his hip in an altercation with sheriff's deputies while he was incarcerated in the Dane County Jail. Eight months later, Joshua's fiance, Allison Davidson, is still seeking justice. Davidson joined Monday 8 o'clock Buzz host Brian Standing to discuss her efforts last week.
2: On December 23rd, 2020, Jimmy Joshua, a detainee at the Dane County Jail, got into an argument with Dane County Sheriff's deputies. As the argument escalated, the altercation became physical. Surveillance camera footage of the incident shows deputies attempting to pick up Joshua, then crashing to the ground after losing their balance. Joshua suffered a broken hip and then was stripped naked and restrained in an isolation cell for 16 hours before receiving medical treatment. Joshua filed a civil complaint, which he withdrew in March, but then asked to have reinstated in May of this year. Eight months after the incident, Joshua's fiance Allison Davidson, is calling for Joshua's release and the firing of the deputies who injured him. Allison Davidson joins us now by phone. Welcome to the 8 O'Clock Buzz.
8: Hi, thank you, Brian. So tell us, how did you
2: first learn about Jimmy Joshua's injuries in jail?
8: Um, well, uh, well. first off, uh, let me. I want to clarify that um, just off of one thing that you had said um, uh, the deputies uh, did not lose their balance. They purposefully picked him up and slammed him down on the ground.
2: <laughs> okay.
8: Um, but, okay, how I learned about what happened was um, he, I usually get a good morning text or phone call and I just was feeling like something was off. Um, and so, uh, they get tablets in there, um, with the option, uh, that, you know, basically I'm able to like kind of call into the tablet, um, at certain hours. And so I did so. And one of the inmates that was kind of in uh, solitary on his hour out, Jimmy had him answer, his phone call. Um, and he kind of relayed to me what had just happened. And so, um, I got off the phone or the tablet with him and, um, called up to the jail, um, spoke to Sergeant Lurklin Um, and in which his response to what I said, um, you know, was worried about and was asking like, why, why did this happen or what happened? Um, his response was, um, we do not do that here. Jimmy must be lying. Mm. Um, yeah. Um, and so I, um, got off the phone with him kind of like serious and, um, kind of feeling helpless. And, uh, with that, after that, they finally took him to the hospital, uh, where he had to have, um, a hip, hip plate. And eight screws placed in um, in a long surgery, um, and has been since told he's never going to walk the same again, and um, has permanent nerve damage, and is currently on a walker. So,
2: how has the uh, deputy, uh, the the Dane County Sheriff's Office, responded uh, since then to those injuries?
8: Um there's been absolutely no accountability. Um, I believe they feel like they're going to get away with this, uh, which they're not um, I'm going to keep pushing to make sure you know there's some sort of accountability, um not to mention the fact that he already suffers um, from severe mental health issues before this happened um, <clears throat> and has since almost every day while he was in the Dane county jail had to pretty much See the men that did this to him. Um, so there's been no accountability, um, and I don't know. I, I feel like that they think it's a joke. Um, so there's been there's been no.
2: Um, has there been an explanation of the incident from the Dane County Sheriff's Office, or have they simply ignored you? well
8: It's either they pretty much ignored me. Um, told me. Uh, we can't comment or um as i spoke with sheriff barrett um a few times um all he did uh was pretty much try to sell me on a new on the new jail not not even speaking to what um happened to him in his jail at all
2: so now, uh, Jimmy Joshua had a lawsuit that he had filed, and then he dropped the suit in March, and then asked to reinstate it in May. Tell us about that. What uh, w- what was the decision? Why did Jimmy make the decision to drop the suit and then reinstate it?
8: Um, I'm gonna be honest. I didn't not know it was dropped, but um, we we have since gotten um, a lawyer, so I don't know if um. We just had to reinstate that with the lawyer that we had or or have. Um, I'm not really positive
2: how okay. that
8: goes. Now, uh,
2: Jimmy is still awaiting a court trial on his original charges. Is that correct?
8: Yes, I believe so. And he um, has since been revocated and um, not too long ago moved to uh, Dodge Correctional. And
2: uh, why why was that? Why was he moved to Dodge Correctional Institution?
8: um that is because um his uh, appeal uh who i might say had never this whole year made the effort to even set up a phone call or visit come visit him anything like that um he was on appeal hold so um if he wouldn't have been on appeal hold um and he just had the bond we would have been able to um, Get him out and get him the proper medical and mental health care that he needs. Um, but he had his revocation hearing, and uh, for some reason, like I said, even without the having the proper medical care, um, physical therapy, all that kind of stuff that he needs in order to heal, they they decided to revocate. Do
2: you think he's safer in Dodge Correctional Institution than he would be in the Dane County Jail?
8: I do. I do um, but um, again, you know it's still prison, so and I, I do believe being injured um, and going in there with a walker, I feel like you know he's kind of going in there already looking like a target because he looks weak from his injury you know again, it is prison, but as far as um, being away from the Dane County jail and the deputies um, and and all that I do feel like he's safer in that
2: aspect. All right. We've been speaking with Allison Davidson, fiance of former Dane County Jail detainee and current Dodge Correctional... On December 23rd, 2020, Jimmy Joshua, a detainee at the Dane...
0: It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to the third week of August 1969 when the Police and Fire Commission attacked the head of the Equal Opportunities Commission, the mass transit system careened around Dean Mann's curve and a former Green Bay Packer struck it rich. Here's Stu Levitan with this week's Madison in the 60s. All
4: these comm- They melt into a dream. Madison in the 60s, the third week of August, 1969. Tension between the minority community and the all-white police department has now even spread to the two Citizen Policy and Oversight Commissions, as the Police and Fire Commission attacks the Equal Opportunities Commission director, the Reverend James C. Wright, over something he never even said. The drama starts when PFC President Stuart Becker and Commission Secretary Edwina Miller tell the other commissioners they heard Wright say in an interview on WISM Radio that the police department finally got two African-American applicants and that they were, quote, highly qualified. This premature announcement from Reverend Wright is exactly the kind of report that causes differences and distrust Commissioner Richard Lentz says, as the PFC formally directs Becker to tell Wright of the commission's concern. They also want Wright to meet with them, quote, in an attempt to prevent future premature reports and unqualified rumors. But Becker and Miller are mistaken. It wasn't Wright who used the phrase highly qualified. It was a wisdom announcer. All Wright said was that the applicants had been military policemen, which he noted, quote, gives them experience to go into police work with the proper police training. The PFC does not apologize. Police with proper training will definitely be needed next week when former Secretary of State Dean Rusk comes to campus to speak to a conference put on by the Graduate School of Banking. Radical activists are calling for a large turnout to quote, rout Rusk, whom they call quote, a war criminal and political murderer who should be treated as such. And there were too many police without proper training when the Mifflin Street block party turned into a riot earlier this year. That's according to some startling testimony from the officer in charge that first weekend in May. Yes, there was excessive police reaction, Lieutenant Donald Mickelson says, revealing that he reprimanded several officers during the disorders which rocked downtown and reverberated across the country. Mickelson also tells the special three-man committee Mayor William Dyke appointed to investigate the disturbance that he's had second thoughts about the police response. I have thought that if we had packed up and got out, nobody would have gotten hurt and they could have had their dance, he says. But Police Chief Wilbur Emery disagrees. If we'd let them have their dance, then what? he asks the committee. What's next? Emery also cites the riot that broke out during the demonstration against the Dow Chemical Company in October 1967 to defend the use of a large force decked out in riot gear to respond to a noise complaint. I learned a very strong lesson from Dow, he testifies, to be sure I had enough men to carry out my mission. And he flatly rejects the notion that such an overwhelming police presence might provoke rather than deter a confrontation. An honest, law-abiding citizen should have no fear but feel pleased if there are a 100 policemen standing out there instead of one, he says. The committee hasn't set a schedule for writing its report, but Chairman George Curry hints it will not find the police without blame. The former Supreme Court Chief Justice says it appears some officers taunted and provoked the partygoers, quote, and hit back in a way not proper for policemen to act. Is it proper for a mayor to act in a way which would thwart the express will of the people? That's the question which rises over Mayor Dyke's handling of the looming crisis in the city's mass transit system, which teeters on the verge of chaos after the shareholders of the Madison Bus Company vote to dissolve the company and go out of business November 10th. Although the company can't shut down until the Public Service Commission gives it permission, the vote complicates an already confused situation. A majority of the Common Council wants the city to buy the bus company and operate the system itself, exactly what voters called for by approving two referenda in April 1968. The council directs Dyke to seek the necessary federal funds, but he refuses to do so preferring to continue the city subsidy to the private company instead and hope it will stay in business. Most disagreeable to Dyke, the council adopts a resolution by radical downtown alder Paul Soglin, directing the mayor to provide a written report every two weeks on the status of the federal application. And the clock continues to tick, with no resolution in sight. Bus controversies are even affecting school children, as parents on the Far East Side announced plans to boycott the bus company rather than pay a new 30-cent charge for each trip to and from Robert M. LaFollette High School. Students at LaFollette used to ride at no cost, under the school board policy of providing free transportation where public bus service is unavailable and students live more than a mile and a half from the school. But in late July, The Madison Bus Company announced it would start a special bus service route for the school for a fee which works out to $54 a year per child. Now the Neighborhood Association is proposing that parents form carpools to ferry pupils to and from the school. Dyke is also thumbing his nose at the city's clear and long-standing policy of trying to build a municipal auditorium. The city has had a formal auditorium committee Every year since voters approved a $4 million bond issue in 1954 to build a Frank Lloyd Wright-designed auditorium on Law Park. But in the four months since he took office, Dyke hasn't appointed any members, so the committee has ceased to function. And the mayors also upset his department heads by requiring them to grade the job performance of all employees on a five-point scale, ranging from unacceptable to excellent. Public Works Director Edwin Druszynski complains the written forms, quote, don't clearly specify the objectives of the system. And City Attorney Edwin Conrad has legal concerns, warning that the new form, quote, might well be slanderous and will likely lead to lawsuits. And former Green Bay Packers coach Vince Lombardi scores a financial touchdown when the Madison-based development company Public Facilities Associates is acquired by the Shoals Homes Company of Toledo, Ohio. As the owner of 12.5% of public facilities, which was founded by Wisconsin Democratic politician David Carley and his brother Jim, Lombardi, now the coach and general manager of the Washington franchise of the National Football League, will collect about $1.8 million in Shoals Company stock. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s for your award-winning vaccine-taking mask-wearing WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan.
0: And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's live local news at 6 p.m. Monday through Thursday evenings. Special thanks to feature contributor Stu Levitan and the 8 o'clock buzzes, Brian Standing. Jonah Chester produced this newscast. Austin Exum engineered the show. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night.